Thank you so much for tuning into Let's Talk, the official podcast of the National Runaway Safe Line, or NRS. At NRS, we operate the federally designated national communication system for youth who have run away, are experiencing homelessness, or who may be considering leaving home. For over 50 years, we've provided crisis support and resources for young people, families, and communities across the nation. This is part two of a conversation with David Ambrose. In part one, we discussed the importance of having honest conversations with young people, how adults can help young people deal with the pressure of peer and social issues, and what inspired David to write his best-selling memoir, A Place Called Home. David, let's pick up right where we left off. Can you talk about your work as a poverty and child welfare expert and maybe give us some examples of the most pressing issues that face these communities today? So, so what I always try and do with policy work is think about the root cause. So if you think about dominoes, you push over the first domino and it kind of goes out. What is that first domino? And then how do we arrest it from falling? To creating all those negative symptoms and outcomes so that that looks different depends on the issue but what i find is in the child welfare or poverty community quite often is we're addressing symptoms which we need to do people are in pain or have problems we cannot ignore that but we also can do two things at once or 50 things at once as president obama said you know americans can handle complexity what are the root causes of these problems? Well, let's talk about that. So in my memoir, my, my afterward is actually a policy proposal. In my book, I considered a book about poverty and how it ground my family into the dirt and what was going on around us and then ultimately how I came out of that system. It is not a coming of age story about being gay. It's not a foster care story. It's not a homelessness story. It's not a mental health story. It's all of that. And I write about poverty because to me, it is the core problem, which leads to a lot of other symptoms that we just so hyper-focus on, which we should, as I, miss, as I said. But what if we looked at opportunities to stop the intergenerational transfer inheritance of poverty and violence? And I focus on foster care in a lot of my work because it's really a unique system in that 700,000, more or less, young people come through the system each year. They're disproportionately young people of color from communities of poverty. What if every year those 700,000 young people were supported and empowered to reach their full potential? What would happen in those communities where they're coming from where poverty and violence is the inheritance, not education and access. These children are in state custody for a period of time, which gives us leverage over their families, good or bad. And we fumble the football. And out the other end of the system comes young people that are ill-prepared and then perpetuate the problems in the communities where they come from, which is not necessarily the community's fault, but nonetheless, they perpetuate the problems. What if we had a fully robust foster care system that looked at these beautiful young people, regardless of their problems and behaviors or whatever, and said, hey, they're not trash. No young person is trash. No young person is unrecoupable, regardless of what they've done, except for the worst, but even them. But look at the vast bulk of young people and say, I'm gonna help this person. I'm going to close my eyes and imagine a foster care system 
And in that imagining, I'm going to think, what if I had to put my child into that foster care system? That's what every American should do. What does that system look like? And if it's not what we have, then we need to create it. Because here's the dirty little secret. Those kids in the system are your system. They're your kids. They belong to us. They are Americans, and this is American foster care. These belong to us. We've broken up families. So in the afterward, I focus on foster care. What would it look like to fully invest in foster care? Because in that moment, we could stop the inheritance of poverty and violence into these communities that we facilitate through foster care. 700000 a year. And in that, I think we could, we could make a huge dent. The other thing I start with in my advocacy, in my lifetime, we've halved the number of kids in poverty in this country. Halved. We need to nourish ourselves in the success of what we've achieved. If we do not, we will not renew ourselves for the struggle ahead of us. We have to take pride and realize that we've made progress. The very moment we have a seat at the table, we're being taught and then we're parroting this idea that the table doesn't matter. Ladies and gentlemen, the government is us. The government is the structure we create so we don't kill each other. It is the only thing that can make big change in this country, and we have to get involved in it, even if it's messy and annoying and tiresome. So I believe that poverty and foster care are intrinsically connected, and it's a really unique moment in poverty systems where we could stop that. And I'm very proud of the work I've done, and the afterward literally is a roadmap to do that work. And you should feel really proud of all the work that you've done, of course. I mean, from getting recognition from President Barack Obama and his administration to becoming a best-selling author. I mean, how does it feel reflecting on your accomplishments like that? And that's, prob that's probably how I should have started our conversation. Um, but I'm curious, do you ever take the opportunity to pat yourself on the back? Do you feel hopeful? Or, or is there anything that you're worried about now that you weren't worried about before? Uh, I've never been more optimistic ever. Uh, we have the least racist, the most economically viable, the most transparent, the cleanest environment, the safest society we've ever had in this country. Boy, do we still have problems. But we constantly look past our progress. And that is not going to, it's not going to sustain us. People throw their hands up and they're like, oh, it'll never be fixed. And the reason we do that is we've been taught since pretty much President Reagan that government's a problem or that solutions can't be found or that we shouldn't help each other, that we bear no responsibility for the least amongst us. I reject it. And when I look around and see progress, I, I just, it's like a sun and solar panel. I feel like a solar panel. I'm absorbing the rays. When I came out of foster care, I could not have sex in 38 states. I was illegal. I went through a brutal regime None of that exists today, uh, none of it. Not that we've solved all the problems, but just that alone. We've stopped a, a um, not so secret genocide of queer kids. We have many, on many fronts, achieved progress and we have to nourish ourselves by looking and reflecting on that because otherwise we won't arm ourselves with what we need to do to keep going. And the other piece that I'm so bullish about it's all, the tools are right there in front of us. We have fought for so long as a people, not just queer people, but as a people, the, less, the, the majority of us, to not just have a seat at the table, but to have the table. 
And at the very moment we're accessing that, we walk away. And I refuse to do that. I have been part of passing laws. I have been appointed official. I love the work that I do professionally, which allows me to kind of direct funds and support. The tools are right there. And what's interesting, we just have to stop being convinced that they don't work and we have to build our own damn road with them. And we can. So I'm constantly bullish. I mean, I, I'm not ignorant of all the problems that exist, which usually is what people beat me up with when I say something like I've said. But what I say is true. And do you, do you know the breast cancer movement? I'm very in awe of that important movement. 30-ish years ago, who talked about that as a topic? What was the words used? Half the species probably thought it wasn't their problem. Where is that issue today? How did that happen? That's what we need in the child welfare community. That's what we need in the poor people's movement. We need to realize that the American public and the world is with us. We need to create a song they want to sing to, and we need to work together using the tools that are at our disposal, which is not hate and fear. It's, it's these tools called government, and we, they're imperfect, and Lord knows that sometimes they feel dull, but they are the tools at hand. And so I remain so dang bullish. I really do. I think, I think sometimes I come across as Pollyanna. I'm not, and if you read the book, you know I'm not. Um, but I want us to stop thinking that we can't do big things together. 10 years before I was born, we sent a person to the moon with no computers. Where is that spirit? What happened? It's right in front of us. It is right in front of us. The air in Los Angeles is clear. The rivers are clean. People, I mean, we have a beautiful place to live. And yet we look past that and only focus on the problem. So yeah, I'm, I'm ranting a little bit because I want people to really reconnect to each other and to the progress we've made in order to nourish our souls because there's so much work to be do. Not to go on another social media tangent, but there there has been this noticeable shift over the past six or seven years where people are more likely to engage with con uh, content that's negative or upsetting or even hateful, just straight up hateful. And, and today you might even get an ad from a company that's like, this is why I hate this shampoo and conditioner. And then it'll go on to say things like, it makes my hair so soft and I'm so mad that I didn't know about this product before. And the goal is obviously to kind of suck you in with that negative part so you see what is upsetting or you can see why, why people are saying that it's upsetting. Mm. Um, and I, I think that actually works because now you're seeing it, a lot of social media marketing is adopting this formula. Um, but I digress. You, you talked about the intersections of poverty and the foster care system. And as somebody who's worked with a, a wide variety of youth-facing organizations, are there any specific strategies that you've seen that have been particularly effective when addressing homelessness and poverty? So um, I'll answer your question, but I'm going to kind of pull the lens back a little bit. You know, I worked in media for more than a decade in uh, television, and I... I worked a lot on social impact causes on um, through the media. And what I realized quickly was how siloed we are. When we think about communicating about an iPhone, go to the website. What does it look like? Now, Google foster care or runaway or any topic and see what comes up. And then compare the two. So what I've always thought is, what if we actually communicated to the public? I think, in, I think inherently the public are good. They're good, they want the best for people. But we don't really talk to them. We talk past them or down to them or not to them at all. 
And our language and approach at communication, marketing, and media is an afterthought. We are all about the work, aren't we? However, we can do many things at once. And part of the reason of the success in my mind of the veterans movement or the breast cancer movement, et cetera, the environmental movement, is because we've begun to not just make people afraid or ill-informed, we've begun to talk to people and have a conversation, invite them to a conversation. I think the child welfare and, and poverty communities can do a better job of working together to communicate. When you Google poverty, you know what image comes up? Bobby Kennedy in Appalachia in 19-something. And not since 1999 in a presidential debate has anyone said the word child poverty or the phrase. We've talked about coal miners at every single one. There's a couple thousand coal miners. There are 8.4 million American children in poverty. So what can we do? Well, one thing we can do is start using known marketing, media, and communication tools. What if we all collectively dedicated 1% of our budgets to work together to bring in a common communication strategy? What if we all sang off the same song sheet? What if we had a call to action like breast cancer did? What if, what if, what if we know what to do? The tools are there. We know in marketing media how to communicate. We sell you products all the time that you may not, may or may not need. Why don't we do that in the child welfare or poverty communities? We're so convinced of our righteousness and we are, we're right. We should be doing these things. But you can build the biggest damn sail in the world. If there's no wind, you're not going anywhere. And God help you if your anchor's set. The wind is the consciousness of the American public. And we've got to do that. And the other, the anchor is our belief that we, our disbelief in each other. We've got to work together. We've got to pull up that anchor and go farther than we can alone. And so the wind is necessary. All these things are necessary. So what do I think? I think we need to communicate better. I founded something called Foster More, which is to rebrand foster care and adoption. Great website. Check it out. Ladder of engagement. But one thing I thought about, for example, was... What word comes to mind when you think about foster care? And I'm not going to quiz you, but your listeners can say the word that comes to mind. In our research, it's racist, sexist, classist. You know, it's one of the ists or isms. What if it was education? What if the first word you thought of was education? Like the cure. So we created the National Scholarship for Foster Youth, which we give out to other nonprofits. And that allowed major American brands to come to this issue for the first time. Because who really wants to be associated with all those ists or isms? They want to be associated with the cure. So what if we all work together to give people a safe space? Or if you don't have any money or you don't want to foster, what can you do? Where would you go to find out? You go to Google. I encourage you to Google and see what pops up. Gibberish. And you've lost people. What if we work together to create a menu with Active hyperlinks to your hyperlocal organizations. Tutor, mentor, give a dollar, give a damn, donate your small talk. What if we work together to create a menu or a buffet where people can intervene in the life of a child or a community to have the biggest impact for them? And I, I just think it's all achievable and doable. We know what to do. We know how to do it. Uh, we simply need the leadership and the will. So I remain very bullish on where we are and where we're going. And I've been part of some things I'm quite proud of in terms of my advocacy work. And the book is a major piece for me to transform that into my next step, which is to do more. Mm -hmm. Do you think that um, youth-facing organizations and agencies are doing better today in comparison to when you were in the foster care system? All, all of them, with the rare exceptions. 
I'm not a huge fan of some of the privatized systems of child jails or, or foster care. I think there's innate and inherent problems when there's a profit motive associated with the care and well-being of young people and their families and communities. I just, I, I fundamentally have a problem with those outcomes, and the research shows that those are those are less good. Um, but overall, absolutely, we're doing much better. Um, and here, there's no doubt in my mind. There's very few stats that I could even think of where we aren't. And those that are worse are probably because we didn't collect the data before as thoroughly as we do now. Um, in my mind, whole peoples were invisible. So they're more visible today than they were then. The data's there. We can do better. But again, remember, in my life, we've reduced the number of kids in poverty by half. That is a result of a million different organizations and government working together to get shit done. And it's working. So yeah, I do think we're, we're, we're largely, if not mostly, better off than we were previously. The laws and policy, you know, and I'll give you a little tidbit. President Trump signed a bill, the Families First, and it allows states for the first time to use money not after they remove the kid from the parent's custody, but before. It used to be you only got reimbursed by the federal government if you took the kid away. And most funding for foster care comes from the federal government. But the federal government changed that and said, no, you can use this money to preserve families. That is a revolution. It has only just begun. And that was a result of a lot of cogitation, agitation, and collective action in the child welfare community. And it's it's the law. And how beautiful that two-thirds of the kids that enter foster care are there because of neglect, which is often a euphemism for poverty, which is quite often a euphemism for racism. What if we didn't take those kids away from those families because they're poor? What if we helped them? And all of a sudden, you've decreased the pressure on the system for other kids that need to go in it um, and their families, and they get the services they need. I one time asked my sister, a social worker, I'm like, what do you do for work? And she's like, I do paperwork. And I'm like, say more. And, you know, one of her key jobs when she detains kids is to find a home or when a kid needs to move. And she goes, I feel like Airbnb. I'm constantly calling all of these places trying to find a home for a kid that's run away or a kid that needs to move or a new foster kid entered the system. And I can't find a home. And she's just dialing, 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 dialing. What if we took the pressure off that system with this new law? And we are. My sister would have more resources at her disposal to place these young people in these homes that are now not overtaxed. More work to be done, but yeah, I think we've made tremendous progress in my lifetime. Our organization, at least since I've been here, has been working on ways to really emphasize the importance of the youth voice, whether it's in our digital media, our training, or our educational and outreach materials and programs, et cetera. Do you have any advice on how we can do this more fully and how we can reach a broader network of youth voices and experiences? Yeah, it's a really important question. So um, the concept in my mind is laws and policies and businesses are always better when they're uh, customer obsessed. And in this instance, one of your most important customers are the success of the young people are the young people. <laughs> and we ignore them at our own peril. Uh, in no other industry would you ignore your customers and your clients. Um, so they should be centered. Listening does not mean doing exactly what people say. 
I, I often listen because we should, but it doesn't mean necessarily mean doing what people say, but the act of li actual listening is really empowering and is something that organizations can always do more of pay for expertise. If you wanted me to, to be a witness for you in court, or you wanted me to do something for you to speak at something, you'd pay me. But what we do is we harvest the negative experiences of young people, and then we make them give us strategic input and insight into our operations. And we just expect them to do it. Oh, don't worry, it's good for you. Screw that, pay them. Um, teaches them all sorts of things. The other thing is, make sure you're doing it appropriately. I think a lot of organizations harvest stories somewhat inhumanely. And foster kids really want to share their story. There is a desire and a seeking of approbation and affirmation. And in doing that, it feels very much like you're seen. And then all of a sudden, the party's over. And you're just there. And you feel robbed. And so you want that next approbation, affirmation. So you share more of your story. And all of a sudden, you become a professional victim as opposed to the person you truly are or who could become. So I think strategic sharing and empowering young people, as I talk about in the book with my interaction with the congressperson and their husband, strategic sharing is very important, that we don't harvest young people and use their trauma or their violence or their experiences uh, as a tool. Young people are not tools. So how do we empower them to share their story and advocate and grow from it? And then I would say a lot of these organizations have I could talk about this all day, but they have incredible boards or supporters. Move beyond the actual topic. Why don't, you, why don't we request all of our organizations that support us to have one intern a year from our group in banking, in pharmaceuticals, in entertainment. Move beyond the day-to-day -day and say, how are we exposing young people to opportunities? And how are we not just like opening the door, kicking the door down? Um, and I'll give you an example. I was part of an effort to require new shows that my previous company was greenlighting on television to have a few positions reserved at the production assistant level from one of our diversity partners, Ghetto Film School, LA City College's Cinema Tech Program, um, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason I pursued this and got it approved was my belief is as you got the door down, what, what the folks saw was this is an incredible pool of talent that we've not tapped. Mostly those jobs are gotten through connections. And all of a sudden, we blew that door down. And those people hustled up the system inside of these networks, inside of these shows and production companies, and they hire differently. They're aware. And all of a sudden, the producer or the line producer is hiring different people in craft services or hair and makeup or whatever. So I think the same thing of organizations. We come to the table, we focus on the issue, but we, we leave some of our biggest weapons of change uh, in our car. You know, you're the titan of this newspaper, this company. Great. Have three internships. <laughs> Mentor. Uh, you know, get actively engaged with a young person, and I think you could change more than that young person's life.
Mm-hmm. I love and appreciate that. And I'm honestly so proud of the National Runaway Safe Line. They're the first organization that I've ever worked for that actually pays their youth advisory board or any young people who support the organization. And honestly, the youth advisory board is very vocal about ways that we can support them so that the relationship is mutually beneficial. And I always try to strongly encourage young people to make sure that they're setting those type of boundaries and making sure that uh, they express their expectations for things things like this, because sometimes people just overlook it. Sometimes people intentionally hope that you don't ask, but either way, making sure that you ask about it and aren't afraid to stand up for your value is something that's extremely important. Um, I have one more question for you. I'm going to take take us back in time a little bit, back to when you graduated from Vassar. If you can remember, you said in your speech at the time that you hated the word home. And I wonder if you still feel that way about the word home. I, I think, you know, I'd have to read that article again. It's been quite a whirlwind, but I, I think I found my home in something that I came to understand, which was not four walls and a ceiling. You know, my home has become and continues to be this work. Um, whenever I try and deviate from this kind of stuff, professionally or personally, I find my, my life much less rich and ever used to that word. And when I continue to do this, I find myself just motivated and alive and more successful by every metric. And I think our concept of home it, to our own peril is too exclusive because how many people are truly invited into your home? Our home is each other. Our home is a community we build for each other. Our home is our responsibility to each other. And our concept of our responsibility to each other is so emaciated in this country. We have forgot how beautiful and blessed we are and how successful we are as an experiment. And that has come because we have constantly sought to improve, not always glamorously. And so my conceit of home is not that I, I love my home, <laughs> uh, but it's it's the limitation with which we place that concept and i want to expand it i want to expand it to you are part of my family uh you know this organization is now part of my life for good or for bad uh you guys may regret calling me but our home is each other it's not a physical space it's much more important than that home is beautiful and lord knows i wanted one and i have one and i want every kid to have one but we don't stop there. And so that's what I was trying to communicate somewhat inartfully, apparently, that there's so much more to that concept. It's so much more expansive and beautiful. It really is. And I thank you so much for sharing, David. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that you want our listeners to take away from our conversation, whether they're young people or service providers or just concerned adults? So A, um, I don't care if you get it from the library or you buy the book, but read the damn book. Um, uh, Hit me up on social, HJD Ambrose on Instagram and Twitter's at Dave Ambrose. And go to my website. I have links to activism that, that drill down into your community. Um, those are important things for me in this, this work that I do. The other piece is, if you don't do anything else, read the afterword. Read the afterword. And check in with your local, state, organizations and, and government and see if these are things that might be put into place where you are. And I would say finally, just um, 
realize the power that we have collectively. Remember, we can send a person beyond the moon only together. We don't have to outsource that. We can do that together. We can end child poverty. We can do this work. We can have the, the city on the hill. And it's not a one and done. It's going to be a constant iteration, fight, and defense of that progress. And that's fine. That's the human condition. That's America. Uh, but don't ever give up. Uh, don't give up. We're stronger together. And we, as a people, are out there. I think of us as Dumbledore's army. We just need to be called to true action and find each other. And then our, our superpowers uh, to deploy them. So don't give up and lean in with the tools that we have, be it the organizations, be it the local government, whatever it is. Lean in, get active. Thank you again, David. And thank you to everyone who's listening. Uh, make sure to visit 1-800-RUNAWAY.ORG slash podcast to hear part one of this episode. You can also find Let's Talk on your favorite podcasting platform. Help us out by rating or leaving a review. Links to learn about and to support David Ambrose are available in the description for this episode. Transcripts of the Let's Talk podcast are available at 1-800-RUNAWAY.ORG slash podcast. <laughs>